Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. The Little Sisters of the Poor, Pennsylvania, New Jersey versus Trump case was actually about regulations that the Trump administration had put in effect, changing the rules, creating a very broad religious exemption, basically saying any employer, any size, for profit or not, that has a religious objection or a moral objection to birth control could simply exclude that insurance coverage from their health plan. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states, and even some other countries, recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there is a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at other minority groups. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, my religious liberty prevents me from serving black people or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course, there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone citing religious liberty discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the seventh part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. In earlier parts of the series, we were talking about how religious liberty and LGBTQ equality can coexist peacefully under the Constitution, but also how the guarantee of equality hasn't yet made LGBTQ people truly equal. Over the last couple of episodes, 
Jenny and Lucas have been talking about religious-based opposition to the legalization of marriage between same-sex couples. The Federal Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, was a 1996 law enacted specifically to protect the institution of marriage from being destroyed by allowing same-sex couples to marry. DOMA's intent was clearly to discriminate against same-sex couples, and from today's perspective, that idea seems antiquated. Under the Constitution, the government is not allowed to discriminate, and even though it took almost 20 years to right the wrong, the Supreme Court ultimately declared the two provisions of DOMA unconstitutional in what are called the marriage cases, Windsor in 2013 and Obergefell in 2015. Because of these rulings, same-sex couples have been able to marry legally throughout the United States for nearly six years now. But that hasn't stopped anti-LGBTQ groups from using religion to try to continue to use the law to discriminate against LGBTQ people. In South Carolina, for example, Lambda Legal is challenging the state's desire to grant public money to religiously affiliated child welfare agencies that discriminate against same-sex couples. There's a similar case, now before the Supreme Court, regarding a Catholic adoption agency in Philadelphia. At the end of last month's episode, Jenny and Lucas were talking about the legal reasoning employed by the court in a series of cases involving LGBTQ equality, and we pick up the conversation there. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's good to be here. What value might these big LGBTQ cases have as precedents when it comes to the conflict between LGBTQ equality and religious liberty? Well, I think what we're going to see as the court will take more cases, and in fact, there's an important case in front of the court right now that asks the court to give us more guidance about the relationship between LGBTQ equality and religious liberty that everybody should have and enjoy. That's a case that has to do with whether religiously affiliated child welfare organizations, in this case, it's Catholic Social Services in Philadelphia, has a right to insist that government give public money to a faith-based agency to carry out a public function. In that case, the public function is screening potential parents to provide homes for foster youth. That's just one type of case. There are other cases that will be coming. I think we will expect the court to look somewhat to pass precedent because it's not a new idea that the equality rights of some people, or really the equality rights of all of us, can be in tension with religious rights that some people may have and want to assert as a reason to not treat somebody else as equal. It's not a new idea. And sometimes these tensions have come up when there's a statute, a law that is promising equality to a particular group of people. Or another way of thinking about that is a law that forbids a certain type of discrimination, regardless of who might be experiencing that discrimination. And when someone wants to assert a constitutionally based right to disregard that protective statute. We can look to past Supreme Court precedents, and there are any number of them, that have considered the relationship between these important American values. But what we have to keep in mind is that the Supreme Court membership changes over time, and sometimes the jurisprudence evolves. The philosophies of individual justices certainly changes as the membership changes. So while we can look to the past for guidance and expect that past precedents will be considered, that does not necessarily tell us what the Supreme Court will do in future cases. Can we infer anything from the dissents in these cases? 
Well, we can certainly infer that some of the justices that have disagreed with the majority holdings in these cases have been very passionate in their disagreement. It's among the things that I have sometimes found troubling and surprising. The language sometimes has been quite harsh. Justice Scalia is an example of that. In the Romer case decided back in 1996, he wrote a dissenting opinion in which he talked about a Kulturkampf. It's not a phrase most of us use in everyday conversation, but he was basically, in referring back to fights in Germany and Nazi Germany in particular, he's explicitly talking about a culture war. And some of the language that he used seemed to be calling on people who agree with him to engage at least in the political process and and maybe more broadly to rally to his point of view and resist the idea that lesbian, gay, and bisexual people should have equal rights. And again, I, I say lesbian, gay, and bisexual because the Romer case was addressing sexual orientation discrimination and not gender identity discrimination. But the idea is that sometimes the dissenting opinions have been written with harsh language and what I read as a call to action. And it can be disturbing because the court is supposed to be the court for all people. And recognizing that we all have the same rights to equal protection of the laws, we all have the same liberty rights and rights to due process of law, it really shouldn't be the case that people are organizing against each other so some people have rights and other people don't have rights. The harsh language sometimes has been taken as a rallying cry. I have found that somewhat concerning. As they say, it is what it is. That is disturbing. Now let's turn to the court's recent religious liberty cases. Let's start with Hobby Lobby. Let's talk about a fictional entity like a corporation. Can it have religious beliefs? Well, some corporations certainly can. For example, nonprofit organizations can incorporate and have the protections of the corporate form. And if they're organized for a religious purpose, then they are recognized in law as an association of people carrying out a religious purpose. This can be a form of charity. It can be a religiously affiliated educational institution, religious schools. They certainly are recognized as engaging in religious activity. There's nothing surprising about that. And there can be businesses that are organized explicitly for a religious purpose, for example, a Christian bookstore or, say, a kosher butcher. The essence of that activity is religious, and yet it can also be carried out on a for-profit basis. That's not that surprising. What was surprising in the Hobby Lobby case was that you had a large corporation engaging in a common business that most customers would have had no idea was religious in nature. I mean, they were selling craft supplies and picture frames and materials for hobbies, open to everybody and no obvious religious elements. So for the court to recognize that kind of a corporation as engaging in religion was really a surprise and contrary to the law that had gone before. In the case of Hobby Lobby, the corporation in question was closely held, What does closely held mean? Well, a closely held corporation is a corporation where the ownership is held in a limited number of hands and the management of the business is carried out by those individuals. A closely held corporation can have lots of employees and, as in the case of Hobby Lobby, lots of stores and do business with lots and lots of people, but the ownership was held in 
in just a few hands, in the hands of family members. And that's why the Supreme Court decided that it could be appropriate for those individuals who shared the same religious beliefs and managed the company consistently with those beliefs, at least those were the facts that were presented to the court, that that could create a kind of exception to the prior rules of law that we had that would not see a business of that type as exercising religion and having the protections of religious liberty. So what importance does that have? Would the Hobby Lobby reasoning extend to a non-closely held, perhaps publicly traded corporation? It really should not extend to publicly traded corporations. The logic of the Hobby Lobby decision was that you had a small number of individuals who shared the same beliefs and managed the company consistently with those beliefs. For a publicly traded corporation, the ownership is dispersed and anyone can buy stock and they could have any number of religious beliefs. And the management of that type of corporation is then accountable to all these different shareholders. So unless you had a business that was explicitly religious in particular ways, where it was understood that the business would be run in that particular way, it's really hard to imagine how that would be. You know, theoretically, you could have an organization, let's say, that is providing addiction recovery services according to a religious model, but also for profit in order to be a publicly traded company that's a a for-profit business. So theoretically, you could have such a thing, but it's hard to imagine what that would look like. And most publicly traded corporations should not be able to claim that kind of religious right. In the Hobby Lobby case, the court ruled that a corporation could hold and exercise religious beliefs. A main purpose someone would choose to do business in corporate form is to provide a layer of legal separation between the people who own the business and the outside world. So, for example, as long as the owners had not commingled funds or done anything else to allow the corporate veil to be pierced, creditors of the corporation could not reach the personal assets of the owners, just the corporate assets, protecting the owners. Could you make an argument that the corporate veil should apply in both directions, not only protecting the owners from the public, but also protecting the public from the prejudices of the owners? Well, I would say it slightly differently. I would say that if the owners can be said to be exercising religion when operating the business, then they should not have the protection of the corporate form. It should be a choice and it should go in both directions, meaning that if they can act through the corporate form, they should be reachable through the corporate form. And if they want the buffer of the corporate form, then that buffer should also restrain their exercise of religion. It's just another way of saying the same thing. But really what it should come down to is either people are acting directly, exercising their religious beliefs, and also engaging personally in the activity, or it's a corporation and there should be a division between the individual and the corporation. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV.
Let's talk about the religious cases that came down during the summer of 2020. Later in the summer, after the Bostock case came down, there were several religious liberty cases, though they did not involve LGBTQ issues. Tell us about them. Well, there were a couple of big ones. One of them has to do with whether there's a constitutional protection for religiously affiliated schools that allows the employer to fire teachers without regard to civil rights protections that are in federal law. The name of this case is Our Lady of Guadalupe. This was actually two different cases that came out of California where Catholic schools had fired teachers, one of whom claimed disability discrimination because she had had to take a leave of absence for cancer treatment, and actually she passed away before her case was decided. Her husband continued the case after her death. So she had needed disability protection. And in the other case, a longtime teacher was fired when she was older, and the powers that be decided she was too old to be teaching, and she brought an age discrimination claim. The court decided these cases based on something called the ministerial exception. It's the ministerial exception based on the First Amendment. So it's a a constitutional protection for the school, not for the workers. And it basically means workers lose their federal civil rights protections if, if their employer relies on the ministerial exception. This is something that is of great concern to us in the LGBT movement because there's often religiously motivated discrimination against us. We need civil rights protections, as do so many other people. We're concerned about cases that arise in religiously affiliated schools. And the decision here was based specifically on the school context and teachers. But it could have gone more broadly. There was a concurring opinion that spoke more broadly about religious organization employers and all employees, not just teachers. And that causes us significant concern because there are many, many services these days, social services, healthcare services, often provided at government expense on the dime of all of us as as taxpayers to take care of people who are in need. This can be any anywhere from homeless youth to people needing healthcare services to addiction recovery to disaster relief. Many of these services these days are provided by faith-based organizations who come forward and seek public contracts to do this work. And many of them do a wonderful job, and they do it as part of their religious mission, their spiritual goals, and the motivation is wonderful and sincere. The question that can arise is whether the religious beliefs, the religious values, calls for discrimination, either calls for providing the services in a way that does not meet the public need, or that calls for only providing the services to some people and not other people. If the ministerial exception were to be interpreted in a future case to provide a broad religious exemption for any faith-based employer, not just for schools, That would have massive, massive implications, not just for LGBT workers or people of minority faiths or anyone who could face discrimination by a faith-based employer. Consider that some religious traditions are that women should not hold certain jobs or should not be in the workforce at all. The implications can also be quite serious for members of the public who need to receive services in a full, professionally appropriate way and without discrimination. So we were quite concerned about the Our Lady of Guadalupe case, and we disagree with the decision of the court. We think the test that was used is too broad and gave the the religious schools 
way too much power, that the the court should not have read the First Amendment as granting that broad an exception. But our top concern is what the court might do in the future in other employment contexts. So that was one big decision. Another important decision came in a case brought by the state of Pennsylvania and the state of New Jersey against the Trump administration. It's often referred to as the Little Sisters of the Poor case because that is an order of nuns that sought permission and was allowed to come into the litigation because they have a strong view about the dispute. And this case actually was one in a series of ongoing disputes about a part of the Affordable Care Act that was enacted by Congress back when President Obama was was in the White House, that provided for broad health care rights for members of the public, as everyone will remember, also included within the idea of essential health benefits, the idea that workers should receive insurance coverage for birth control if they want it, if they need it. Obviously, somebody who doesn't want it or need it wouldn't take advantage of that insurance. But the Affordable Care Act rules and regulations that were developed by the Department of Health and Human Services received a lot of information from the public and developed rules that recognized that contraception is an important part of health care for lots of women, lots of workers. That health benefit has been under continued litigation assault by organizations and employers that disagree with that health insurance. That was the issue in the Hobby Lobby case where the owners of all of those Hobby Lobby stores disagreed with birth control and did not want to have birth control insurance in the health plan that they were required to have for their workers. There was litigation after that as well. And the Little Sisters of the Poor, Pennsylvania, New Jersey versus Trump case, that litigation was actually about regulations that the Trump administration had put in effect, actually changing the rules and creating a very broad religious exemption, basically saying any employer, any size, for profit or not, that has a religious objection or a moral objection to birth control could simply exclude that insurance coverage from their health plan. And even going further than that, would have no duty to tell the government when they assert that objection. This is something that we found very concerning because it's one thing to allow employers to have an exemption if they disagree and inform the government so that the workers could receive their birth control insurance a different way. That's what the Supreme Court said in Hobby Lobby was like, okay, we want to accommodate different sorts of employers. If religiously affiliated employers can opt out of providing this insurance, then we we decide it's reasonable for, for profit employers to have that same right to opt out. But you need to tell the government so the workers also get what they need. And in the words of the Supreme Court, really, everybody wins. Well, that's not what happened in the decision that came from the Supreme Court this past June. The decision this time was the employers of all sizes and shapes can opt out and they don't need to tell the government that means the workers will be deprived of this health benefit that Congress provided for and the prior rules provided for. And the Trump administration changed them in a way that the court, in our view, really should have recognized as inconsistent with the law. They changed the rules in a way that they're not supposed to change the rules. The court should have said, no, you might have been able to do this, but you should have done it properly. So we were, we were very disappointed with that decision. So now you've talked about the ministerial exception. Just to be clear, can you explain that? 
Sure, the ministerial exception is a Supreme Court-created rule based on the free exercise clause of the Constitution. It recognizes that part of the mission of most religiously affiliated schools is to teach the faith, to share the beliefs of the faith, to inculcate the faith, and that teachers that are teaching the faith in that way are acting like ministers to spread the faith, and that the religious schools should have the same freedom that houses of worship have to select the people that are going to be ministers, to select the people that will teach the values of the faith, the traditions of the faith. It's based on the First Amendment's protection for free exercise of religion. Because it's a constitutional right, that means that employers, in this case religious schools, can assert that right as a defense if employees, and in this case teachers, assert a federal civil rights claim or other kinds of civil rights claims if their employment is terminated. What happens if the ministerial exception is expanded too far? Well, we're quite concerned that if the ministerial exception is expanded too far, that means employers have too many rights and workers have too few. We've had traditions in this country going back half a century of protecting workers and protecting people in other contexts as well against discrimination. It's been an important step forward for our country to recognize that certain types of discrimination have existed historically and been fundamentally unfair. And so employers that are large enough, schools that operate with public money, healthcare providers that receive public money, in a range of contexts, people who have less power and are are vulnerable to discrimination should be protected. If the ministerial exception is read too broadly by the U.S. Supreme Court, that will tilt the balance in a way that would really be unfair and would be harmful. And that's something that was recognized in dissenting opinions of the Supreme Court. Really, we're talking about whether workers would have the right to make a claim in court doesn't mean they necessarily would win. It means they would have an opportunity to make their case. If the ministerial exception is read too broadly, they don't even get to have their day in court and try to make their case. And that's unfair. What concerns us particularly about having the ministerial exception read too broadly is when it's read to apply to people whose main role is not teaching religion. It's not to be engaging in a religious function. We're talking about schools that, to be accredited, must have classes on a range of subjects, most of which are secular. Somebody's teaching math or science or geography, that's not a religious function. If it is too much of a religious function, then that school is, no, is going to lose its accreditation. What about people that are in food services or accounting or other kinds of job functions where they're not actually doing religion? They should be protected. At that point, the school does not need to be picking and choosing, and in fact, should not be picking and choosing people based on religious criteria. So if the ministerial exception is applied to the wrong job functions or to the wrong types of employers, then it becomes really unfair for workers. We're out of time, but we'll continue this conversation next time. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. My pleasure. Anytime. That's it for the seventh part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of the series, it's available on our website outcastingmedia.org. 
This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.